0: Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to The Gospel House. Our mission here at The Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ.
1: Now, this week, we move onward to our next sermon series uh, for the month of September. Uh, and this series is called, Why Revival Terry's? For those of you who don't know what that means, Terry's is just a fancy word for takes a long time. So why Does revival, after we pray, so much for it, right? Why does it take so long to actually happen? Now, those of you, some of you may be familiar with this title. This is actually the title of a book by Leonard Ravenhill. Uh, If you love that book, you are going to be sorely disappointed with this sermon series because I have not read this book, nor do I intend to, for this sermon series. I don't have anything against it. I'm just not going to read it because I just like the title, so I stole it. Um, Because I got my own ideas on why Revival tarries. I've got the Holy Spirit's, hopefully, ideas, right? You don't want my ideas. Nobody's coming here for Jeremy's ideas. We want to hear the Holy Spirit's ideas. So why does Revival tarry? And we've got to talk about this. And this is actually going to lead us into, uh, we're going to go through this for four weeks, and then on the last Sunday of September, we're going to do a Revival Night here. Uh, we're going to come out here. Uh, we're going to combine with Pastor Jared and Lauren uh, and their church that they've been doing, and we're going to do a revival night right here at the Gospel House, Sunday night, uh, September 25th at 6 p.m. We'll be out here, and I encourage all of you to be here. But we've got to teach on it first, because just in saying that, just in saying we're going to have a revival night here at the Gospel House, some of you who absolutely love revival nights, you're starting to salivate a little bit, and you're starting to fantasize about, ooh, we've never done a revival night at the gospel house. What's this going to look like? Ooh, this is where we're allowed to get crazy and weird stuff happens, right? Pulling venomous snakes out of boxes and all that stuff, right? Right, pastor? That's what we're going to be doing? But then there's others of you who don't like revival nights, Because you've seen some revival nights and you've seen some snakes come out of boxes, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And the nightmares are already starting. Oh, goodness. This is it. We knew it was going to happen eventually, but Pastor Jeremy's gone crazy. This is where he goes off the deep end. So we got to talk about it. What is revival? This is a long, long time ago. We were actually still in the barn. Some of you may remember this. You can go back on the podcast app, Spotify, or on our website, and you can check out these old teachings. But we went through this sermon series called Reframing Our Thoughts. And we took these biblical terms like worship, discipleship, all these things, and we reframed because Christian culture has a tendency to grab some of these terms and just run away with them. And we start making them into things that aren't biblical at all. And so we look at worship, and and we look at worship as, well, look, the worship team, they were just up here, they did their music, they sang some pretty songs, it was wonderful, and now our worship is over, and now we go on to the word. False. That's where culture has taken worship and has run away with it to make it something that is not biblical. And so with all of these things, we've got to get back to a biblical understanding of what it means. And revival is right up there on that list. Because the fact of the matter is, just the fact that when I say revival, we've got two different trains of thoughts, and people who automatically jump to weird and crazy, that shows you how far we've taken revival, right? We've got to come back to a biblical understanding. We have to find out what is real revival. Back when I used to be on social media, and I should probably advertise this from the front just so nobody's deeply offended, I have deleted all of my social media accounts, so if we used to be Facebook friends and all of a sudden I'm not your Facebook friend, I promise you I did not block you or unfriend you. I've had a couple of people who, why did Jeremy block me? <laughs> I didn't, I just deleted everything because I'm just tired of it. So, don't be offended, alright? But back when I used to be on social media, I was friends, I had this connection with a youth pastor who was in the area, and he had posted a picture They had gone to like a Bethel worship night or Elevation worship night. So he posted this picture with this stadium just packed. And all these people, what looked like the the entire stadium, just lifting their hands, you know, and worshiping. And the caption under it read, this is what revival looks like. And me, being the highly judgmental, cynical person that I am, said, no it's not. That's not at all what revival looks like. And now, I'm, I'm older and wiser now than I used to be, so I can step back and look at it and I can say, I still don't think that's re- what revival looks like. I'm just not as judgmental about it as I used to be. But that's our problem today. We Christians have convinced ourselves that we can get revival by going to a couple worship nights a month singing all our favorite songs. We can go and we can have this super emotional experience for three hours, and we've had revival. We can wave some glory flags around and shake our tambourines, and we've got revival. Or we can have a night where a bunch of people come and we heal them and pray for healing and restoration and all this stuff, and that revival Unfortunately, that is not what biblical revival looks like. Now, can revival have those aspects? Absolutely it can. But I promise you, if you go back and study revival throughout the Old and New Testament, you will see every time that those are very small elements of what revival actually is. Revival must go so much deeper than just an experience. And we need it. We desperately need revival. I should also mention revival, the the very nature of the word. You guys know what it means to be revived, right? Right? You you brought it back to life. Yes. Right? Right? But here's the problem, you can't be brought to life if you were never living in the first place, right? So in order to be spiritually revived, you have to have been living at one point, correct? So we have these revival services that turn into these evangelistic outreach for the lost. Ladies and gentlemen, revival is for the church. I know I'm going to get stamped, you know, oh, you're excluding non-Christians. Revival is for the church, Revival is for the living, who who have been alive in Christ, who need a jump start. And when you go back and look at biblical revival, that's where God starts. And it starts right here in Isaiah 6, right? Because who's getting revived here in Isaiah 6? Isaiah, right? Isaiah, the prophet of Israel, right? Right? Because a lot of times, we Christians get in a dangerous place where we think, well, I don't need revival. I, I mean, I personally don't need revival. They need revival. These guys over here need re- That church down the road, they need revival. And we convince ourselves that we don't need it. But ladies and gentlemen, if Isaiah, the prophet of Israel, we're going to hit on this hard today, if he needed revived, then guess what? Nobody is above revival. We all Need it so? How do we get there? We're looking at four points today. Pastor Jeremy's gone completely bonkers and put an extra point in there. Four points. I know. Ring your hands, gnash your teeth. I don't know what we're gonna do. It's not the clean three, so we're toast. But here are the four points that we need to cover today, and we see them all so perfectly. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture, where, where Isaiah encounters the Lord. So first, let's look at number one, the focus of revival. This is so insanely interesting to me. I heard Pastor Tim Keller uh, talk about this once, and I have never been able to forget this. Every time this passage comes up in my Bible in a Year plan, I think of what he said, because it's, it's crazy. But he, he says this, Isaiah comes to church, right? He comes to the temple, his church. He goes there, and he encounters the last person in the world that he actually expected to be there God isn't that interesting and I would pose the question to us as the church today when we come to church what are our expectations well expect 30 minutes of music and then pastor Jeremy's going to get up there and preach way too long And then we're all going to have fun hanging out afterwards and have some food and fun times and it's going to be great. But do we actually expect to come and encounter the Lord? Now I'll say, we encounter the Lord different ways, right? I hope you encounter the Lord when I preach. I hope that the things I say are driven by the Holy Spirit and they touch a nerve and you think, oh, I'm going to do better on that this week. And you change, right? Don't tell me I preached a good sermon. Go live it, right? That's what we're looking for. But Isaiah came to the temple and saw something he never expected to see. And that was God. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. Now just to give you all a little historical context on what's going on here. King Uzziah was a good king in Israel. You guys know when you go through Second Kings and Chronicles, that's where Israel's changing kings every other page. You, when you go through those, you got, you got one of two indictments. You've got King so-and-so who either did right and did what was pleasing to the Lord, or you have King so-and-so who did what was evil and displeasing to the Lord. And so it seems like you keep jumping back and forth. You've got good and pleasing, evil and nasty. Good and pleasing, evil and nasty. And you just keep going back and forth. Israel's kings, woo, woo, woo. And then eventually, they just start getting bad and bad and bad and bad. And then God says, this promised land I gave you, see ya. You're evicted. It's like when you don't pay your rent, right? So King Uzziah was a good king. His reign ended a little poorly. He, he tried to do some things that only priests were allowed to do. He got leprosy. He refused to ask God for forgiveness, so he was never healed of le- leprosy. And so he ended up dying completely separated. When you were a leper, you had to live separately from everybody else. No contact with people. Couldn't go to church. Couldn't meet with people, whatever. So it, it, the end wasn't good. But here's the problem. The prophet in Israel, Isaiah, he is sitting here thinking, this next king, what am I going to get? What's it going to be? Because, like we said, it has been so back and forth, evil, good, evil, good. You have no idea. I mean, you, listen, you guys have all had a job where you change bosses, right? A new boss comes in, and you get that. It's kind of like, oh, oh, I don't know what he's going to do. He's either going to hate me and fire me, or he's going to give me a promotion. So what do you do? You laugh at all of his jokes, even though they're not very funny. You stay at the office and pretend you're working. Like, oh, I work until five every day. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Come on, guys, we've all been there. Don't lie, you're in the house of the Lord. Right? That's what we all do, because the new boss comes in and you've got to impress. Here's the problem. Have you all read the book of Isaiah? Have you? Sucking up really isn't in his arsenal of things to do, is it? Because it's kind of obey or get destroyed. So if a bad king comes in, the prophet of Israel, if you're going to be a good prophet and listen to God, you don't really have the choice of letting him do bad things. So you've got to believe that Isaiah is internally in turmoil right now, right? He doesn't know if he's going to be running from his life because there have been prophets before Isaiah and the kings didn't get along with them, and they were constantly on the run wondering whether this day was going to be their last. Because if there's one thing Israel has been really good at, it's killing prophets, right? That was what Jesus said. And so he's in this inner turmoil, but in the midst of this turmoil, God shows up. And God has a track record of doing this. We talked about this when we talked about moving onward from loss. But sometimes, almost so often, in our darkest hour, God shows up. When you feel like you are at the end of your road, God shows up. And He shows up for Isaiah right here in the middle of it all. And what is the focus of this revival? It's not music, right? There's no music. There's no worship. There's no healing or gifts, glory flags, trumpets, shofars. There's no doctrine, no theology. Just God. An experience with God. We talked about this all through the Onward series, and we talked about it with emphasis on our anchor, right? Where is your anchor? And if your anchor is in the right place, you can get through anything in life, right? Who is our anchor? Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, through everything, right? So why would it be any different in revival? God must be the focus of our revival. Can I tell you something, church? The majority of times, and look, I, you know, Pastor Jeremy's so hard on the church today. I, look, I'm guilty of this. The reason I'm hard on the church is because I need to change this. I want to change our church so we don't do this. But the majority of the time, go back and think. Think of your encounters where you've talked to somebody and they've said, we, well, we need revival so bad. The majority of the time when people say we need revival, they mean we need better morality. We need higher moral standards. And listen, church, I won't let you off this hook. When we say we need higher moral standards, what you actually mean is my higher moral standards. Because church, come on, do you live up to the whole letter of the law? Right? I mean, I'm talking everything. Because when Jesus comes, what's Jesus say? He says, look, it's not good enough to just obey the law. You need to think above the law. Y'all think above the law? Do you take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ? Because if not, you got work to do. But usually what happens in the church is we say we need morality. Because look, look at all these awful things that are going on that don't agree with my political party. Look at all these things that we've allowed to slip and slide. and My morality. Not God's morality. My morality. That's what we run to. That or, if it's not morality, it's a feeling. Right? I want to I feel good. I want to sing all of my favorite songs. That's what I want revival. That's what I mean when I say, it, it was an an, I used to get that as a worship pastor a lot. When I used to play worship, people would come up, that was such an anointed service. Oh, really? Why is that? Well, you sang all of my favorite songs. Ah, so it wasn't actually about anointing at all. It was about personal preference. Gotcha. But ladies and gentlemen, that's our problem. We have associated r- revival with a feeling. We have associated revival with personal preference. And ladies and gentlemen, God doesn't do that. If we want revival, revival has to be God's. And look in this passage, in this revival of Isaiah, what is the character trait that God leads off with? What's the first thing that God gets introduced as? It's like the, the heralds blow their trumpets da 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 da. Announcing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holiness is what leads this revival. Maybe one of the reasons that Western church struggles so much to see revival is because we don't talk about holiness anymore. It's like a four-letter word in our culture isn't it? We run from it like the plague, even in our Christian culture, because the problem is you cannot be holy and relevant in today's culture. And for some strange reason, we Christians choose relevance over holiness. But in revival, true revival, God's holiness takes center stage. And it's really why we see what happens next. The weight of glory. I absolutely love this. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. I will never not talk about it because I love it so much. But in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. And it literally means weight. That's, that's what that, that Hebrew word means. Kavod is weight. And every single time you see God's glory fall in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, every time you see it come down, it is always accompanied by an earthquake. Isn't that interesting? All right, you're going to get a science lesson now. Are you guys all ready? I hated science in school, so it's a miracle that you're getting a science lesson. But here's the thing. There's this super, super smart scientist guy. He's old. Uh, his name is Wolfgang Pauli. He's not alive anymore, so I can insult him and he's not going to come after me. But he came up with Pauli's principle, which says that two items of mass cannot occupy the same space. This is how I feel about most laws of physics. You know, it's like that chair is blue. Science, right? It's like you're stating obvious things. If I take two rocks and smack them together, oh, look, these two objects can't occupy the same space. Smack, smack, smack. We know this, right? But there's a scientific principle that says it's true. Two objects with mass cannot occupy the same space. Now, look, it gets super complicated. There's protons and neutrons and electrons. So it goes deeper. So some people will be like, well, what about laser beams? There's a scientific explanation for that. I just don't have time for it right now. So... We did this demonstration once when we were at the barn and I I actually filled a a jug up with water and I took a rock and I plopped it in here. Now, it was a lot easier to clean up water off the floor in the barn than it is here, so I'm not gonna do it today. But that's called, that's another smart scientist, that's called the water displacement theory. When you drop an object in water, the object with the greater mass is going to take up space, right? And so water pours out of the top of the thing because the rock has greater mass, right? All of this to say, when God comes down, there is an earthquake because God's weight, God's mass, the weight of glory is so great that all of creation has to get out of the way. Ladies and gentlemen, this is why it is so silly. It is silly. It's downright silly for us to sit here and pretend that revival looks like, yay, Jesus! He's here! Because that's not you getting out of the way. And if you look in the Old Testament, New Testament, wherever it is, when God's glory falls, what happens to every person present? They are on their face. They bow. There is no option to sit up and sing and dance and wave flags and tambourines. You fall, because God's glory is so great, is so powerful. There's no other option. I love that that image when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in the book of John, and the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, come to capture him. And for a moment, Jesus pulls back the veil. He says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he pulls back the veil. And in in whatever language he was speaking, Hebrew, Greek, whatever he was speaking, Jesus says, I am. He doesn't say I am he. Most English translations say I am he. That's not what he said. If you go back and read the Greek, he says, I am. And all of the Roman soldiers fall and bow before him. Jesus had that option. He didn't have to be taken that night. Because the weight of his glory was so great at any moment, he could have caused all of creation to fall before him. But he chose to take on the cross for us. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. But every time God shows up, everything bows. Outside and inside. Because look at what happens to Isaiah, right? This is why it's significant that holiness is what leads the way in this revival. Because when Isaiah is confronted with God's holiness, what is his response? Woe is me, for I am ruined. That that Hebrew there literally means I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. Seeing his holiness is tearing me apart. He is broken before the Lord of hosts because he has seen God's holiness. The weight of God's glory far outweighs the sinful man that Isaiah is. And again, keep in mind, this is the prophet of Israel, right? Isaiah was a prophet before this encounter. The prophet in Israel, coming apart at the seams, calling himself a man of unclean lips exactly what an encounter with holiness does to us that's why we don't like it of all of the character traits of god holiness probably rubs us the worst right because you can't sit there in light of god's holiness and pretend like you've got it all together when you see how holy he truly is when the weight of that glory hits You've only got one choice, and that's to bow before him. Everything, outside and inside. This is why we don't like holiness. This is why our culture doesn't like holiness. And and the very fact, ladies and gentlemen, if you sign on that dotted line to be a Christian and to live a life holy. Because your God is holy and he has given you the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness. If you live a holy life, this is why Jesus says the world will hate you. I don't know, have any of you ever been there? You don't even have to say anything. It's not like you're sitting there harping on people all day long like you really should do this. Yeah, nobody likes somebody like that. But you don't even have to say anything. Just living a holy life is enough to rub people the wrong way. Because when you won't do something shady to get ahead in a business deal, but they're willing to, that confronts something inside of them that God has placed inside of them like nothing else. And unfortunately, this is so prevalent in culture that it's even become prevalent in the church. If you decide to live a holy life in the church our super hyper grace culture within the church. We don't like it. We don't talk about that stuff. We don't, hey, we don't do that stuff. Relax a little bit. You don't have to talk about Jesus all the time. That's church culture. God's holiness forces an internal God quake inside of us. And it begins the reaction that causes revival. And that's number three, our responses to revival. This is why what most call revival today is not actually revival. Because in order to be real revival, there must be a response. When we're at a Bethel worship night and we've all got our hands lifted, and we're all jamming out to all our favorite Bethel songs. If you go home and you go to work the next day, the exact same person as when you went into that Bethel worship night, that's not revival, folks. It doesn't matter how high you raised your hands, how loud you sang, whether you knew all the words, there must be a response. This point three is actually going to be our thesis statement. You guys remember thesis statements? High school English, coming back at ya. Some of you absolutely hated thesis statements. You still don't understand what the heck they are. All right, we'll throw the thesis statement out so you don't have nightmares tonight. This is going to be our outline for where we're going in this sermon series. So each week, we're going to talk about these three things, right? Three more weeks, we've got three things. I'm not going to go into big detail on them today. We're just going to look at how they applied to Isaiah's life because each week we're going to look at a different biblical revival that fits in these categories. But here's the deal. Revival tarries. We do not experience revival, real revival today, because our current Christian culture does not allow for this kind of response in revival. First is contrition. That's a super fancy way of saying that you feel sorry and broken over your sin. Enough to turn from your sin, to actually turn from it, to get rid of it, to stop doing it. My mom always used to tell me, like, I, you know, I had a little brother growing up, so I'd punch him in the face, and, you know, I'd get in trouble for it. And so, you know, we'd, we'd be forced. We always had to do this horrible thing where we said sorry to one another, and then we'd have to hug each other, and then we'd have to say, you are my brother, and I love you. And it was awful. It's the worst thing. I mean, for real, you just punch somebody in the face, and like, I'm, I don't want to say that. But the, then the other thing that we always had to do when we said sorry, we'd always be like, I'm sorry. And my mom always said, now what does sorry mean? And you always said, sorry means I'll never do it again. And the whole time, you know, I'm like five years old, I'm thinking, I'm going to do it again. Just wait till mom walks out the room. You can get it twice as hard, buddy. But that's what true contrition and repentance looks like. I'm sorry, but I'm gonna turn from it. In fact, when Jesus comes to this earth and starts his earthly ministry, what does he preach? Jesus preaches. We love grace, Jesus. Oh, big hugs and loves. That's not what he taught. Repent and turn from your sin. That's what Jesus taught, y'all. That was what he first came on the scene teaching. Repent and turn. That's what contrition is. And today the church is far too little broken over our sin. We're not broken nearly enough because we let it hang around instead of just getting rid of it and being done with it and turning. Dependence. We are dependent upon God working in us and not simply to do our best, right? Our practical culture, just do your best. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says surrender and let God do it. Walk in the Holy Spirit and let God do it. And obedience. And we see all three of these things in Isaiah's encounter with God. Because here's the thing, Isaiah very well could have gone in here, oh wow, look, God, his whole robe is filling the temple, that's neat. There's seraphim singing songs, it's a little repetitive for my taste, but hey. And then he could have gone home, hey honey, met God today at church, it was kind of cool. Yeah, I don't know if he'll show up next week, but it was kind of cool today. Well, I'm going to go plow the fields, and nothing changes. Because that's how we treat revival today. We come to church, it's an anointed service, we go home, nothing changes. But real revival has these as a response. We see it first in Isaiah in contrition. We just talked about this. Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is Isaiah, the prophet of Israel, saying, I am broken. But what is Isaiah's sin that he's so broken over? And ladies and gentlemen, we've talked about this, but we've got to get this down. If Isaiah was a murderer, an adulterer, uh, you know, pick any of the top sins that we love to put up on the shelf of these are the big sins, don't do those. The other ones, eh, you know, if you dabble in them, it's not such a big deal. If Isaiah was only guilty of the big sins, he wouldn't be a prophet in Israel. If I, I, I don't know if Isaiah was married, but if he was, and he was constantly cheating on his wife, if he was frequenting the ladies of the night and doing all of these things, he wouldn't be allowed to be a prophet in Israel. He especially wouldn't be the prophet in Israel, right? So what are Isaiah's sins? And it goes back. What did we say sin is? It is anything that is not God's way. Right? Anytime Isaiah showed up and said, oh man, I know what I'm doing here. God, God, I I went to that prophecy seminar last week. And let me tell you, uh, Joe, he really gave a, a good word on how to prophesy. So God, you sit over there in the bleachers like a proud dad and watch what I can do. And then he gets up there and prophesies doom and gloom to the Israelites. Wrong. That's walking man's way. But guys, that's what the church teaches today, right? Go through our discipleship seminar, read my discipleship book, and you'll know how to disciple your kids in 12 easy steps. But but is that man's way or is that God's way? Now look, I'm not saying it's wrong to read self-help books. But ladies and gentlemen, you have been given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. You can surrender to him everything in your life and let him direct it. So do you want kids raised by Joe Schmuckatelli who wrote a book about how to raise your kids? Or do you want kids raised by the Holy Spirit, the living God, working through you to raise your kids? I know my choice. But that's what Isaiah's guilty of. That's what he says here. I am broken because I've been trying to do things my way. I've been trying to do things man's way. And I am a man of unclean lips. And it broke him. And that brokenness drove him to a level of dependence. Now we miss what's going on here, right? It gets kind of weird. And so we see weird, and we just check out, and it's in the Bible of the year plan. Just go to the next day, and we don't have to think about it. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Here's our problem. We read this, and we say, okay, good. Isaiah's sins are taken away. He's forgiven. He's forgiven. Show me where in the Old Testament the recipe for forgiveness of sins is touching burning coals to your lips. You guys, where is that in Leviticus? Because I know a lot of you have that memorized, the whole book. It's not in there, ladies and gentlemen, right? The only way to forgive sin is the shedding of blood. That's God's law. There's no burning coals in there. So when this coal touches Isaiah's lips, is it the coal that takes the sin away from Isaiah? It is not. Right? We know this. Isaiah knew this. And if you read the book of Isaiah, you will quickly find out he knew this. He knew that there was a redeemer coming for Israel and that he would be the one who would completely wipe out everyone's sins. That was who Isaiah was looking for. So what is this? What's the coal's? And it goes back to what we said. Isaiah, a man of clean lips. It's significant. Isaiah was a prophet. Who is the prophet in Israel? He's the mouthpiece of God, right? It's going to be really hard to preach for God if your mouth's burned with coals, isn't it? But maybe God doesn't want Isaiah speaking Isaiah's words. Maybe God is touching Isaiah's lips with this burning coal. To say, now where's this coal coming from? It's coming from the altar, right? What sits on top of the altar? The sacrifice. Who is the sacrifice? Jesus. Do you see it? God is saying to Isaiah, I am burning away your words, and I am putting in you Jesus' words. Right? Jesus is the word of God, right? Who became flesh. I'm taking away your words and I'm going to make you dependent on me. I want you to speak only my words. And that's how we're going to do this. And in this newfound level of dependence, Isaiah does not go home and sit on his dumper and watch the Browns lose a football game. He says to God, when God asks, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And let's be real honest. What is the point of revival if we aren't going to do what God says? Ladies and gentlemen, what's the point of coming to church week in and week out if you're not going to do what God says? When people look at this church body at the gospel house, Guys, I pray that they find people who do what God says. That they look at us and they see people who are obedient to God. And what's crazy about Isaiah doing this, Isaiah doesn't even have the marching orders yet, right? All God says is, man, we need somebody to go. Who's going to do it? I think majority of us, Western culture, well, what are we going to do, God? God. Well, Jesus says, Count the cost, Lord. So, what what am I signing up for? Like, you're going to send me to Tibet? Or, like, what's going on? Because I want to stay here. I don't really want to go overseas or do any of that stuff. So, tell me what I'm doing, and then I'll sign the paper. But that's not what Isaiah says, is it? Isaiah is confronted, radically, drastically confronted with God's holiness. And he says, God, I've seen you. I don't need to know the cost. I'm yours. Which really drives home our last point. The first step of revival. And I personally think that this is the reason why we don't have revival in America. Why the Western church is going to struggle to see revival spread across the masses. And it is desperation. Simply put, We are not desperate enough for revival. We are not desperate enough to pay the price that revival costs. Isaiah doesn't even know what the cost is, right? God says, Who's going to go for me? And Isaiah says, Sign me up. Well, but I haven't even told you yet. I'm your man. I'm your man. If we had more people in the church today who decided before anything else, I'm going to be God's man. I'm going to be God's woman. No matter what. I promise you revival would come. But we aren't that desperate for it. Because look at what comes next. God says, all right, Isaiah, you signed it. Contracts in there. Can't cancel it. Here's what you're going to do. I heard the voice say, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? He answered until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. Come on now. You guys see that in the help wanted section in the newspaper. Who's calling that number back? Right? I mean, this is like the worst nightmare for any ministry. Hey, Jeremy, I want you to go start the gospel house. Nobody's going to come. The people who do come, who are your family, uh, they're not going to listen to anything that you say. Um, You're just going to preach to these people. Okay, God, like that sounds like a great time. How long do I do this for? Well, until there's absolutely nobody left and you drive everyone out of the area. Sign me up. That sounds (laughs) glorious. This is God's growth strategy, right? This is what Isaiah was tasked to do. To go in and preach God's word. Not his way, but God's way. Even though no one would listen. Even though no one would accept him. And read the book of Isaiah and pay attention. Isaiah is utterly rejected. Isaiah is desperately alone. There is no one on this road with him. And why does he do it? After walking through all of this, why is Isaiah so desperate for God? Because of how it all started. Isaiah saw God. This is why we lack desperation in the church today, ladies and gentlemen. Because we don't really know who God is. We haven't really experienced him. Because if you experience him to that level, to this level, and and look, we're going to look at this each week because it looks different. It's really easy to look at this passage you know, Isaiah, in the, king, or in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. So, you know, we've got the churches that are like, it's all about experience. Forget doctrine, forget theology. It's just about experience. And they point to this and say, look, see, experience. It was experience that drove revival. We need experience. But the problem is, not every revival starts like that. We're going to cover more next week, in fact. We're going to cover a revival that doesn't start like this. It starts with doctrine. And so it's different. It looks different for everybody. But there's one thing that doesn't look different, and that's the Holy Spirit. Because no matter how he comes on you, no matter what that looks like, ladies and gentlemen, you might go home and you might say, hey, honey, I need a minute. And you go in the bedroom and you get on your knees and you say, God, I am desperate for you. I want you. And right there in your bedroom, this happens. The robe of the king fills your bedroom and you see the king of glory. The Holy Spirit can do it. He's done it for people in the past. You hear testimonies all the time about people who have seen Jesus resurrected or have, have, have looked him in the eyes or you know, have seen these different things. It can happen. Or tomorrow morning, you might quietly open your Bible and you might flip to the page that you're at. And our Bible in a year, we're in Ezekiel. And you flip there and something hits you and just grabs you from that passage. And you just say, God, I'm sorry. I get it. I am desperate. I'm all in. Whatever you want, Jesus. But here is the thing. It is always God who drives revival. Does that sound familiar? It should, because that's the gospel, isn't it? Tell me if you guys have heard this one. 1 John 4.19. Any bells ringing here? We love because he first loved us. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't muster up love for God and decide one day, I'm going to love God. That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit prompts it and drives that love into your heart after you have seen how much he loves you. That he so loved you that he gave his one and only son. That's how we love God. So why would it be any different with revival? This is where our love comes from. This is where our contrition comes from. This is where our dependence comes from, our obedience comes from. And it's where our revival has to come from. Seek him first. Desperately seek him. And what does Jesus promise? He promises us. What? This is Jesus, y'all. If you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart I'm going to get really insensitive here and I'm just going to pound because we're pounding right now right I already feel like crap good feel crappier we need to start seeking him with all of our heart gospel house I apologize to you because I have let things into my heart that have kept me from seeking him with all of it. Stupid things. Spending too much time on social media. Just spending too much time on my phone. I'd I'd just snap it in half. That'd be bad, because then nobody would be able to get a hold of me, right? That's what we think, right? But they know where to find me, because if I'm desperately seeking him, I will be here on my face, and I will be here until I find him. That's what we lack today. We ask and we ask and we ask for revival, but we aren't willing to just sit and wait for him to show up. Do you want revival? Do you really want it? Because he's told you how to get it. Seek him with all your heart, and I promise you when you find him, and you will, he will move and he will start a fire in you that cannot be put out. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house slash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.